Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There are old fears that every so often feel brand new. I think there ought to be a law against them. Tonight I'm going to show you why. That's a television special from 1955 focused on the corrupting effects of comic books on young kids. And we're about to leave the topic of comic books to focus on a pressing issue in 2021, but it's worth spending a few more moments on that 1955 program in which Tennessee Senator Estes Kefauver marveled at how the country had become buried in comic books. A hundred million a month, he said, were being pumped out. Mostly, they were fine, but about 20 million were of the horror and crime type that concerned him. Uh, all of our testimony from psychiatrists and uh, children themselves uh, show that it's uh, very upsetting, that it has a bad moral effect, and that it is directly responsible for a substantial amount of juvenile delinquency and child crime. There's almost always a moral panic about the impact that they'll have on children. Certainly, um, we saw you know, in the 1920s, people were concerned about the impact of movies on children and adolescents. By the 1960s and 70s, it was television. So there's always some kind of moral panic about how a new media technology will impact children and adolescents. Kate Eichhorn is a professor of culture and media at the New School, and she says, look, you could be worried, like people were, about television and comic books, worried that kids will grow up too fast, that they'll hear, they'll see things they shouldn't. And let's be honest, almost everyone's worried about that when it comes to their kids and the internet. But here's where it gets interesting. Eichhorn is worried about exactly the opposite problem, a problem few of us are paying attention to, the possibility that kids today won't be able to forget anything. My concern is that one's social identity management and development has always had a lot to do with being able to forget the past. So as much as growing up is an accumulation of experiences and knowledge, it's also an accumulation of things you've forgotten and let go of. And there's a reason why we actually remember more positive than negative memories. Because if we remembered all of the negative things that happened to us, we would all be very troubled individuals as adults. So take a moment here. Think of the last few funny pictures you saw on Facebook. Pictures of people with kids, grandkids, cousins, nephews, whatever. Kids with maybe spaghetti on their head or, you know, their hand in the toilet or teenagers on dates or trying on clothes. What's going to happen to those pictures in five or 10 years or in 20 years? Where do they go? What if the answer is nowhere? Kate Eichhorn is the author of The End of Forgetting, Growing Up with Social Media. And she says, pull out your good old high school yearbook or don't pull it out. It used to be more of a choice. One of the things about high school yearbooks are full of terrible images and embarrassing statements and sometimes really incriminating autographs and personal prescriptions. But they, with very few exceptions, and now many of them have been digitized, so that's actually changing everything. But in the past, you know, you shared those yearbooks in the moment, then they got thrown into the bottom drawer or to the back of a bookshelf, and you never saw them again, or very rarely would they come to the surface. Today, those few embarrassing images that we had in our high school yearbooks for 
today's adolescents, they have thousands of those images circulating online, not all of them in their control. So, you know, if you just compare that experience someone might have had with the yearbook in the 70s or 80s or 90s to the experience member of Gen Z has in relation to their Instagram or Facebook or whatever TikTok posts, um, it's profoundly different. And when they're 30 or 40 or 50, what will come to the surface when will just not be in their control to the same extent. And you can look at this on a spectrum of from the small to the big, like, I mean, certainly there are like relationships, you know, a lot of people had in high school that they'd really rather forget that kind of thing. Um, But you write about, I, I mean, the fact that like there were people who came out of World War II and made sometimes very clean breaks with their past, like did not tell their children what they had been doing during the war, maybe did not tell them what religion they had been brought up. You know, whatever the thing was and for whatever the reason, um, they left those things behind. And because they just didn't have like digital photos and Facebook and this and that, those things didn't follow them often. Yeah. And there's, you know, which is not to say that forgetting is necessarily good, right? right? There were a lot of people who forgot things that they shouldn't have forgotten or felt like the only way forward was to repress those really traumatic memories. On the other hand, when I was writing the book in 2016, 2017, you know, every morning I'd open up the newspaper and there were images of the young migrants traveling uh, through Europe. And what struck me is that often the only thing they brought with them was their cell phone, Mm -hmm. right? Some very basic paperwork and their cell phone. And there are thousands of images of their journeys. So their experience of that very traumatic event in their life, it will be much more accessible. It's also unclear if some of those images will come up when they don't want them to or when they least expect So I think that it's a question of one's control or agency over traces of the past. Well, I was going to say what, um, when you, you know, if somebody is like, well, so what? So you're, you know, you're tagged on Facebook or, you know, yeah, pictures of you are around. What do you worry about? What could be so bad about being in a bunch of people's posts from, you know, birth on? Like, what, what's so bad about that? What, what would you answer? Well, to talk about a, a fairly recent event in early 2021, Teen Vogue appointed a new editor. And within weeks, she had been forced to resign. And she'd been forced to resign because 10 years earlier, when she was a high school student, She had posted anti-Asian and homophobic posts on Twitter. Within a couple weeks of her resignation, one of the staffers who had lobbied for her to lose her job before she even started was also suddenly in the news because it turned out that she had posted offensive posts on Twitter in high school as well. So then we were left with two very successful, young, visible minority women being accused of racism, one losing her high profile position. On the one hand, I look at that and I think, yeah, the posts, if you read about them, I mean, they were racist, they were homophobic, they were problematic. But I think, is it good that we live in a world where two young, successful, visible minority women careers 
are now in question because of mistakes they made before they were public figures. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you can change, that you can become more aware, that you can become more sensitive, uh, that you can change your mind seems to no longer be the case. And I think that that's politically very frightening, particularly as politics become more polarized in this country. We know that when young people do a four-year liberal arts degree, you know, they tend to become more open-minded, a bit more left-wing. People change when they go to university. So if people are now being held accountable for things they said when they were 14 or 15 or 16 online, I think that that also has broader political consequences. It's interesting. I actually can think of my own experience in college and think of people who came in believing one set of things politically and left believing a completely different set of things politically, which is to say, as you say, people can change, which we we know is true. You talked about um, Alexi McCammon, uh, who's the who was going to be the editor of Teen Vogue, um, being forced to to step down because of these um uh, tweets that she had uh, done when she was a teenager. She's in her late 20s now. Do you think what ended up happening that she couldn't take that job was the right outcome? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. What she originally posted was problematic. But if she was a teenager then, she wasn't in a public position. I think we need to leave open the possibility that people change and grow. Being a teenager is all about trying on different identities, sometimes different political positions, sometimes very problematic ones. It's not that that is behavior I'm interested in condoning, but I'm invested in the idea of change. I mean, to give you another example, we now increasingly have you know, younger people choosing to identify as a gender that they weren't assigned at birth. In the past, the ability to reinvent yourself, to distance yourself from your assigned gender at birth would have been quite easy. Today, that's increasingly problematic or, or challenging, I should say, because you're so tethered to the past by your social media ties. Um, so you carry your entire network from childhood with you. So I think that that's another thing I I, I talk about in the book and I feel very strongly about is that forgetting means different things to different people. And some people have more of a need to distance themselves from the past than others. Hmm. Do you feel then like this issue um, of forgetting, of, of potentially being able to reinvent yourself is particularly of interest to the LGBT community? Absolutely. So, you know, when I was working on this book, I write very briefly in the book about my personal experience. So I grew up in a, in a rural area, a fairly conservative place. When I went to university, I think I had phone numbers of a couple of people I was going to stay in touch with from high school and a few photographs. And maybe I think I still had my school yearbooks. But other than that, I completely severed ties with everyone. So when I was 19 and I came out when I was in college, there was no one in the community I came from would have had any way of knowing that I had come out. Had that been happening in 2000 or 2010, I definitely by 2010, I would have had 
a Facebook page. I would have had some other, you know, social media accounts and still been connected to people I went to high school with and even elementary school with. And so I probably, and my students have told me that they've done this, they just shut down all their social media accounts and start again. It's the only way for them to come out without having everyone in the small town that they came from know what's happening in their current life. So I think that for the LGBT community, not for everyone in that community, but I think depending on where you're from, the ability to sever ties with the past is actually, uh, has historically been profoundly important. Well, and if you go back to the uh, Alexi McCammon Teen Vogue story, when you think about this new difficulty of getting rid of the past, though most people will never be as famous as Alexi McCammon, so many people have heard of this story um, I, I wonder then, like, what do average teenagers or average parents take as a message from what they've seen, from what they've read? Um, how do you think this is reshaping how people conduct themselves? Yeah, I think that when I started working on the book um, in 2016, that there still was, there was a bit of awareness, but there was not nearly as much awareness of why it is that a young person might want to carefully curate and control their their image online as there is now. So one of the critiques of my book is that some people said, you know, but young people are very, you know, conscious of their online image. And I thought about that more. And one of the things I started to notice, partly because I have teenage kids, is I noticed that one of my daughters actually, when she was 13, created a LinkedIn account. Technically to create a LinkedIn account, you have to be, the cutoff used to be 14 and then it went back up. I think it's now 16 in the United States. And when I asked her, you know, why she lied about her age to create a LinkedIn account, she was very clear about the fact that if you want to get into a good college and get a good job, you better have something that comes up on your search. When someone searches your name, the thing that comes up should be something that looks very professional, like a LinkedIn account. And so I started to research this and I realized there were thousands of underage LinkedIn users. I tried to get data from LinkedIn, which they wouldn't share with me, by the way. I am still trying to investigate this, but what it indicates to me is that there are increasingly young people who are going to the opposite extreme. And that to me is also problematic because what it means is that they're so concerned mm-hmm. about how they appear online that they're not taking any risks, that they feel like the only thing that can appear is a picture of them wearing corporate clothes <laughs> with a very official looking corporate LinkedIn uh, page. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Kate Eichhorn. She's the author of The End of Forgetting. We're going to take a quick pause right here. And if we've gotten you thinking about what the internet will and won't let you or your kids forget, let us know how this story intersects with your life. You can email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. We're also on Facebook and Twitter if you want to reach out to us that way. From GBH Radio and PRX, this is Innovation Hub.
Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Almost 20 years ago, a boy in Quebec was playing around in his high school and taped himself on a video cassette. The tape was harmless. He was pretending to wield a lightsaber from Star Wars and doing fancy sword-like moves. Two kids found the video and it was 2003. It took them over four months to figure out how to transfer the video to a different format and upload it to the internet. But according to Kate Eichhorn, when they did figure out how to upload the video, it spread like wildfire. And he became known as the Star Wars kid. He was bullied at school. His parents transferred him to a different school. But of course, digital images follow you. He's now a lawyer in his late 20s or early 30s. And he eventually did, uh, just a few years ago, did an interview with McLean's Magazine in Canada and talked about the impact that that one incident had on his life. Eichhorn, who's a professor of culture and media at the New School, argues that the traces of us and our kids and our grandkids that now come out of our phones every day like a string of digital breadcrumbs, they are not going anywhere. To me, the most concerning part of this is that there's a kind of freedom one has when they're able to leave the past behind, reimagine who they are, create new social networks. There's a sort of transformative potential in that. There's something liberatory about it. So my biggest fear is that there's a loss of not just agency, but freedom when one's ability to forget the past is diminished. And it's not just images or silly Star Wars videos. Almost everyone can think about people in their family who maybe over the course of a long life changed their opinion on something. Maybe there was a moment when they thought women were really best suited to being homemakers. And maybe there was a later moment when they thought women should actually have more choices. The real danger to me is a political danger that if the message is once you have one opinion, that's it, you're never changing you're essentially reinforcing the idea that people's political positions are calcified at a really, really young age. And I think particularly at this moment in the United States, that's an incredibly dangerous position to embrace. But the reality, of course, is that people are doing searches on other people all the time to figure out their fitness for a job or for a school. Eichhorn, who's the author of the book The End of Forgetting, says... This happens to very different degrees to different people. But it raises an important question about whether kids today are ever going to be able to grow up and to change. I think if you're talking about a public figure, the more important someone is in the present, the more likely it is that people are going to dig through their personal history. So you kind of have to have a reason to go back and do that search so the real question to me is, we can think about recent incidents, like there are a number of incidents that happened around high school yearbooks. So there was, you know, the Brett Kavanaugh trial where people were looking yes. at his past, right? Absolutely, yes. I think it's, it's really interesting to ask yourself, like if that happened in 2000, that entire trial would have been profoundly different because of the digital traces that would have been available to reconstruct what happened at that party. So you mean like the yearbook would have, I mean, obviously, I, I don't know what, when yeah. he graduated from high school, but long before 2000, but yeah. um, you're saying like the yearbook would have been around with people's ability to like 
upload images of that yearbook and circulate them. And I know during that trial, you know, or during those hearings, people were trying to really try to understand, like, what is the meaning of this thing that you said in the year, you know, that was said, right? Yeah. And then there were other people who said, maybe it doesn't matter because he was 16 at the time, right? But then a few months later, there was the Ralph Northam case. In that case, two racist images on the page of his college yearbook. So another question is, do you make a difference between statements or offensive images that an adolescent is responsible for versus someone who's in their early 20s? I was going to say, I think Ralph Northam might have been... been... 23 or 24. Yeah, or older, right, exactly. Yeah, right. So... To me, it's a question of, it's not just a question of whether or not the person's a public figure now, but what age they were when the material in question was circulated. And those are difficult questions. Like, why should there be such a profound difference between someone who's 17 and 18 or 16 and 17, right? You know, is there then a backlash coming? Because very often when the pendulum swings as it has, like in one direction. Um, And here we are using digital tools to uncover all these pieces of people's pasts. Um, Will that continue? Or is there, you know, a sort of pushback to that coming in terms of like, what's acceptable? That's a question people always ask me when I do talks. And there are some people who feel very strongly, and this is, I've noticed, this has been the case for five or six years now, that eventually, We'll just assume everyone has lots of dirt about themselves online and people will stop looking for it. And I just don't think that that's the case. I think that if people have a reason to find information, they will have more opportunities to find it. And so, again, I feel that some people have more to lose than others. And I do think moving forward, given that you know we've monetized our sociality. We've monetized desire with things like dating apps. We've already monetized remembering, and I think we'll monetize forgetting. So it exists to a certain extent already. People who are wealthy enough can hire a company to do a digital footprint cleanup when their kids apply to college. But I do think if we're looking into the future, there will be more opportunities for people who have the means to do so to manage their online reputation. And again, some people already also have this access. If you have enough money, you can hire a public relations firm and they'll help manage your everything from your Wikipedia page to incriminating articles that are published about you. But I think that moving forward, we might see people who aren't public figures being able to tap into those kinds of resources if they have the wealth to do so. Um. Is it your impression that big tech companies are thinking about this problem? Because this is really not like a niche problem that, you know, 10% of people have or 20% of people. I mean, this is a pretty much an every person problem because even if you're not posting stuff, even if you don't have Instagram or you're not on Twitter, you're not doing Facebook, almost nobody uh, is not appearing on those sites in some way because they're they're tagged in other people's stuff and their friends, their relatives. Um, so what do you think big tech is thinking about this whole issue? I think big tech is thinking about this issue, but I don't think there's any real motivation for them 
to address it. If you think about this in relation to children and youth, next to cats and pornography, baby pictures and pictures of children are one of the most popular types of photographs to post online. So there's not a lot of incentive for a social media platform to discourage parents or grandparents from posting those photographs. More importantly, and this is an argument I make in my book, is in the past, child labor laws have prevented us from tapping in to child labor. If you think about it, social media companies rely heavily on children and youth as content producers, unpaid content producers. So in a way, there's very little incentive whatsoever for those companies to address this issue. And I'd argue that because young people have a lot of spare time and they have an incredible desire to be in touch with their friends and be communicating 24-7, it could be quite detrimental to, you know, discourage them from engaging in that content production. So if you're hearing all this and you're um, a, a parent or a grandparent or a kid and you're thinking, whoa, I did not I did not think about the long term implications of what I was doing. I was thinking about like tomorrow and next week and what 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 my cousins are going to see here. And, uh, you know, and now I'm thinking uh, maybe a little longer term. Um, what would you say the the takeaway would be for a kid or an adult who's who thinks, okay, what what can I do? What should I do? I think one thing that we don't do enough of is media literacy. I mean, it does exist in the school curriculum, but I don't think that young people learn early enough about things like the structure of technology companies or how they make their money or where the content one produces on those platforms ends up circulating and and how and how long. So I think that I'm not someone who thinks that we should take kids' devices away or, you know, I think that those moral panics are always incredibly problematic and that everything is positive when I think about the fact that for the first time, young people can capture images of their own life and circulate them widely. That's positive. Um, but I think we need to do a better job with media literacy so they can make really smart, informed decisions. And I think parents also maybe need a bit of media literacy to understand what's at stake when they're posting images, in some cases, comments about their children online. Kate Eichhorn is author of The End of Forgetting, Growing Up with Social Media. She's the chair and an associate professor of culture and media at the New School. Kate, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for the invitation. And again, let us know what questions this discussion has raised in your mind. What's the story you have to tell? Email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org.